If you've enjoyed listening to Issues Etc. in 2023, please make a year-end gift to support this worldwide outreach. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution today at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. In your twilight years of your life, are you going to look back and say, boy, I sure had great Instagram photos? Would it not be more meaningful if you had a grandchild's hand to hold on to, to sing hymns with you, and to encourage you, say, Grandma, I will see you again. I can't wait. The land that we're talking about, the land of Israel, God owns it. And anyone who's been on it, biblically or otherwise, has only been a manager or a steward. Jesus clearly believed in the Trinity. He rose from the dead, and until you do, I'm going with Jesus as the best witness to the truth of what is meant in the Christian church by the term Trinity. When we're talking about the, the liturgy, what we're not talking about is a style of worship. Rather, we're talking about a theology of worship. Aerobatic pilots, at least this one, love issues, etc. Clear! <laughs> the Bible makes extraordinary claims. Some of the stories in both the Old and the New Testament seem unbelievable. Parting seas, a six-day creation. Jesus in the New Testament walks on water. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He himself rises from the dead, so extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof and evidence. Is it there? Why do Christians believe that these stories aren't unbelievable, but actually believable? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Our series, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, continues responding to the fact that many believe the stories in the Bible don't seem real. Dr. Adam Francisco will be our guest. Pastor Tom Baker joins us after that to teach a Sunday school lesson on King Josiah in 2 Kings 22, and we'll be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the fourth Sunday in Advent, with the gospel reading of the birth of Jesus foretold with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Dr. Adam Francisco is Director of Academics and Scholar-in-Residence For 1517, he is co-editor of Making the Case for Christianity and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Dr. Francisco, welcome back. Hi, Todd. You say that the problem with allegedly unbelievable stories in the Bible isn't the stories themselves. What do you mean by that? When anybody approaches any sort of text that says something or describes events that don't fit the worldview the reader has, they'll oftentimes uh, filter it out or dismiss it automatically without even taking the claims and the text seriously. So, you know, in a lot of modern commentary, this is oftentimes referred to as confirmation bias. So the extraordinary claims that you find in the Bible, whether it's Jesus' resurrection from the dead or the six or seven day creation event for modern secular minds, they've ruled out, and the the technical term here would be a priori, before looking at the facts, if you will, 
that such things could even take place. So the problem isn't that there aren't facts or there aren't good reasons to believe those stories. The problem for modern secular reader of those stories is that they decided beforehand, before even a serious analysis or examination of the facts, uh, that such things can't happen. Why do we believe that the stories in the Bible are true? Well, I don't mean to sound sarcastic at all, but in many ways, you know, you'd have to ask every individual why they believe that. But I would say the the strongest argument Christians have made over the centuries is that we believe the plain text of Scripture is the Word of God, not because our grandmother told us it was, although that's maybe a good reason, but most importantly because Jesus regarded first the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament as the Word of God, and then he gave a promise to his apostles that their preaching would be inspired by the Holy Spirit. You find that in John chapters 14 through 16, and that the Spirit would cause them to remember everything that Jesus taught them. And it's the preaching of the apostles that will eventually be written down and comprise the New Testament. So I would argue that's the strongest inductive argument for um, the truthfulness and the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of both the Old and New Testament. So how does the Bible compare to texts held sacred by other religions in that respect? Well, there's a lot of uh, religious texts or sacred texts out there, and they're all distinct. I think just for, a, I guess, an easier, quick point of comparison, if you compare the New Testament to, for example, the Quran, and just taking the Gospel of Luke, for example, all the New Testament authors, of course, are, are good authors and they are reliable, but Luke is writes like an exacting historian. And you know, it gives all sorts of, as do the other gospel authors, geographical references. They refer to political leaders. In short, they refer to all sort of external things that somebody in the 21st century could go back and investigate. But if you look at the Quran, while it purports to, in a way, describe the events around the, the life and times of Muhammad and then also some biblical characters, one thing that's really interesting about about it for the first-time reader of the Quran is how few external references there are to contemporaneous geographies or political leaders of Muhammad. So the Quran reads like a historical narrative in places, but there's really no way you can go and, and check it up. And then you add to that the contemporary Islam in the Arabian Peninsula is very reluctant to grant any sort of archaeological rights to anybody for their own reasons, but it's not like the Bible where there's been, since the dawn of archaeology in the late 19th century, just decade after decade of research into the historical background and, and context in which the uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament was written. The Quran doesn't work like that. And you add to that other sacred texts that are even more, if you will, mythological, like I mentioned in the chapter, the Bhagavad Gita in the Hindu tradition, especially associated with the Hare Krishna movement, it kind of reads like a historical narrative about a great battle that took place in the northern parts of the Indian subcontinent. But all the geographical references or other historical allusions are to places and persons for which there's no historical evidence. And if you ask 
a person within the Hare Krishna tradition, if the stories are in any way verifiable, they'll sort of look at you with a, a glassy eye and say, well, these events didn't take place in time and space as you and I know it. They sort of remove the historical elements or shift them into the realm of what we might call meta-history or some sort of metaphysical event that's in no way verifiable, let alone falsifiable. Has any archaeological discovery overturned the claims of the Bible? That's a huge question. There have been claims about archaeological finds that allege to discredit Christianity. Probably one of the more famous and recent ones is the so-called Talpiot tomb that was discovered, I think, originally in the 1980s. Sometimes it goes under the title the Jesus Family Tomb, where some Israeli officials were alerted to the construction work around Jerusalem, where they found a number of ossuaries, or bone boxes. And included among those ossuaries was one that allegedly claims it was the bone box of Yeshua bar Yusuf, Jesus the son of Joseph. Now, I say allegedly claims that, or allegedly says that, the, the inscription on the ossuary is a bit complicated. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's been, uh, part of it has been washed away over the course of time. It's not clear if it actually did read Yeshua or Jesus, son of Joseph. In addition to that, though, just because it said, if it did say Jesus, the son of Joseph, doesn't necessarily, in fact, I would, I'm sure we would argue that it doesn't, I mean, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Mary, who was crucified, died, and rose again on the third day. In fact, if historians have oftentimes pointed out that the name Jesus and the name Joseph were extremely common. I don't know the, the percentages off the top of my head, but somewhere, if you're going to make a guess or gamble at a, a common name for first century uh, Holy Land, Jesus and Joseph would for sure reward you because they were so common. But I remember when this was first discovered, there was a lot of media attention about it. And then I think in 2007, a producer from Hollywood, James Cameron, held a press conference claiming that they had discovered the tomb of Jesus and the bone box his bones were placed in and alleged by extension that this would falsify the claims of historic and orthodox Christianity. First of all, there's no reason to believe it actually is a bone box for a person named Jesus, the son of Joseph. That's more of a deduction from some of the inscriptions on the box. And, and secondly, there's nothing that suggests it's actually from the family of, of Jesus of Nazareth that you and I know of. While there are archaeological discoveries that some sensationalists use to whittle away at the truthfulness of Christianity. For example, I think it was just a few years ago, within this, certainly the 21st century, maybe within the last decade, maybe in the last five or six years, archaeologists have shown beyond reasonable doubt that the city of Nazareth, or actually more of a, a little village of Nazareth, was an actual historical place. Whereas up until that point, Nazareth was described in some ancient writings and certainly is described in the New Testament, but there was no hard physical evidence for it. And so a lot of skeptics claim that that was an invented place by the gospel authors until I think it was a Jewish archaeologist showed that he had discovered 
the remnants of a house. Some have gone so far as to claim that, that it may have been the house that Jesus grew up in. That's more speculative from Nazareth, as well as a bunch of other things like pottery shards and, and things of that nature. So archaeology can be a friend to Christianity. It can be used by Christianity's critics. We have always, anytime you hear anything about an archaeological discovery, whether it's against or for the Christian faith, one has to be a bit cautious in accepting it. Because archaeology is still, in many ways, a discipline that's in its infancy. It's only been around for about 130 years, I would say, 140 years. And because it, it deals with hard facts, apart from not in every case, but oftentimes apart from any sort of text, it's not always self-evident how those facts that are found in the ground ought to be interpreted. And just like with texts, when archaeologists or scientists of whatever sort look at a hard piece of evidence, they oftentimes interpret what that evidence means or what it speaks to in light of the, the assumptions they come to the investigation with. What do we do with the stories that cannot be confirmed by archaeological evidence? The short answer is, you could say nothing. <laughs> um, uh, just because there's no archaeological evidence for something, especially places or events or personalities from thousands of years ago, in many ways we shouldn't even expect to find things. What's re really remarkable, though, is how much has been discovered. I think of the discovery of Jericho, I think it was Kathleen or Catherine Kenyon, man, maybe maybe over a century ago now, discovered what she thought was Jericho, but ultimately, I believe, claimed that she wasn't really sure what she discovered. But since then, what Dr. Kenyon had unearthed has been shown beyond a reasonable doubt to actually be a Jericho. And in the um, the ruins of Jericho, you find some interesting things with living quarters in some of the walls that correspond to the biblical text uh, or in the story with Rahab. So that we have what we have in our, from archaeology with respect to the Old Testament, but especially the New Testament, even those lots of gaps that archaeology could potentially fill, what we have is still quite remarkable. And there's kind of maybe an analogy here with the documents, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, where we have approaching 6,000 Greek manuscripts, that is, handwritten copies before the arrival of the printing press of the New Testament. And only Daniel Wallace, one of the leading scholars in this field of research, says we've only really studied about 25% of those manuscripts. So archaeology is kind of similar in that there's still a lot more to be discovered, so that there isn't archaeological evidence confirming something or another isn't really one that should concern Christians. Moreover, I, I would like to quickly add that just because archaeology can confirm things doesn't mean that our faith rests on it. It just helps. It's certainly helpful when archaeology confirms the things we believe in. We're talking to Christian apologist Dr. Adam Francisco in our series Answering Arguments Against Christianity. Today, the stories in the Bible don't seem real. When we come back, how are the extraordinary claims of the New Testament verified? If you've enjoyed listening to Issues Etc. in 2023, 
please make a year-end gift to support this worldwide outreach. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution today at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. In the Advent season, we reflect on the birth of hope. Luke 2.6 tells us, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. In the quiet moments of Advent, let's embrace the anticipation of Christ's birth. From all of us at Lutheran Church Extension Fund, may this Advent season fill your heart with hope, love, and the promise of a new beginning. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. St. Mark Lutheran Church in Waco, Texas is proud to support Issues Etc. Join us for worship and Bible study. If you're in Waco for business, college, traveling through the city, looking for a great place to retire, or searching for a church to receive Jesus' love and forgiveness, then visit St. Mark, a century-old Christ-centered Lutheran congregation in the heart of Waco, very near the silos. The Lord Jesus Christ be with you always. Visit us at stmarkwaco.com. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series Answering Arguments Against Christianity. Today, the stories in the Bible don't seem real. Dr. Anne Francisco is our guest author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Over Rule 3. For a year in contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you Objections Over Rule 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also make a financial gift by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for listening and for helping us cast ChristNet on the Internet. Dr. Francisco, the New Testament contains a lot of extraordinary claims. How are these verified? Well, the resurrection of Jesus is probably the one that we could talk most about. If there's an event described, certainly there's others, but if there is an event described in the New Testament, in the gospel records, that has been at the center of a lot of controversy over whether it happened or not, it would be Jesus' resurrection. And I think the first thing we have to say about it, and similar events, is that those events, because the gospel writers are at least purporting, we would probably take away the word purport there, but they're purporting to describe what actually happened in history. Kind of in a similar vein of when Paul stands before King Agrippa and and says to King Agrippa that he himself should know that the events that he described to Agrippa, namely the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, did not happen a corner 
the gospel authors are essentially are writing in the same sort of spirit, if you will, in that they are purporting to describe what actually happened, so much so that they include details that if they were just writing propaganda, they wouldn't have included. I think of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, the women. If the gospel authors are trying to simply persuade their readers and the people hearing the text being read that Jesus rose from the dead, for a first century, especially a Jewish audience, the first eyewitnesses you're going to use are not going to be women in that context. And yet those stories are put into the gospel accounts and they are not taken away in subsequent centuries because it was important for the early church to preserve the record as it actually happened. So with Jesus' resurrection, you can't, I mean, in theory, I guess, if you could get in a time machine with Bill and Ted and go on an excellent adventure to first century Holy Land, you could bring a an iPhone and actually record the event if you knew where to go and so on and so forth, such that the resurrection is, in, in principle, a verifiable event. Now, how do historians verify whether a purported event from history actually took place? Well, for the historian, they amass and collect all the data or evidence that they can get their hands on, and they draw conclusions from the evidence. And what you get with the resurrection of Jesus is you've got eyewitnesses claiming to have seen Jesus. You've got the four gospel records that have as their centerpiece of their story the resurrection of Jesus, or at least the last week of Jesus' life, and the places and persons and events that took place constantly in other historical texts and the archaeological record, always or they always check out. You don't have any evidence to the contrary that the empty tomb on Easter morning is best explained by the resurrection. And I think that's a pretty important point. If uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not to be believed, if the historical witness of the church is not to be believed, then one has to come up with an alternate theory as to why the early church claimed Jesus rose from the dead, as to why the apostles, with the exception of John, willingly embraced martyrdom for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and so on. And while there certainly have been theories that have been put forward, you you think of the old swoon theory that says Jesus didn't actually really die on the cross, but looked like he died and he revived in the tomb and was able to push that stone that may have weighed at least a couple tons out of the way after being beaten within an inch of his life and perhaps uh, went looking for the lost tribes of Israel or something like that. Or you have theories that the women marry and and then Peter and and the other apostles went to the wrong tomb on Easter morning. You have all sorts of other theories explaining how it is that those early Christians or those you know those first century Jews who became Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The problem with all those other theories is while there are possibilities when it comes to historical explanations, there's really no facts or evidence that support them. So the long and short of it is it's a little bit of a complicated discussion to just talk about how you verify extraordinary events in the New Testament. At the same time, the reasoning that historians 
use is not too different than our normal everyday reasoning when we're making important decisions, if you will, in that we look at the evidence and try to order our life around the facts and evidence. We Hopefully we order our opinions and our beliefs about the world, the present world, around the best of the evidence we can get our hands on. So connect the dots for us. How are the Bible's many other claims, all these other stories, connected to the veracity of Jesus' resurrection? So I would argue the big case in point would be Paul's claims in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are the most pitiable of all people. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, We've believed a lie and so on. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, hypothetically speaking, then you really can't trust the rest of, of the New Testament. We can see why it might be reasonable then to question the rest of Scripture. One of the reasons why I think there's a strong case that Adam and Eve were historical persons, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, uh, Elisha, Elijah, and so on, is to be sure because it's written in the text, but even more emphatically, I would say, because Jesus himself confirmed that these these people existed, that Jesus himself believed they existed. Jesus regarded the Old Testament, in fact, he calls it in the Gospel of John, the very word of God. Now, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's not really to be believed because he's the one who made some remarkable claims about himself, and he rests the authenticity or truthfulness of his claims on his forthcoming resurrection. So if he didn't rise from the dead, there's no reason to believe the rest of what Jesus says. But because he did rise from the dead, this in in a way confirms or verifies the rest of his claims and by extension the claims he makes about history and and past persons and prophets and, and the nature of the Old Testament and so on. How is the content of the Gospels, as you say, more than mere eyewitness testimony? So from a historian's point of view, historians and archaeologists and, and academic people like that are looking at things horizontally in a way, for lack of a better way of putting it, by modern, scientific, secular standards, if you will, without the ideological connections to it. And the most a historian can say, or at least initially what a historian can say, and there are historians who aren't even people of faith who will say it, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in some way, shape, or form, were or recorded eyewitness testimonies. Now, the the Christian is going to say, well, indeed they are that. In fact, the early church, one of the reasons why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are recognized as canonical New Testament scripture as opposed to some of the other gospels that are written later on that might have uh, names associated with them but were written too late to be actually authored by these people like Thomas or there's a gospel Peter floating around there's a few other non-canonical gospels is because the reason why they're included in the canon is because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by eyewitnesses or people who wrote in the context where eyewitnesses could check on the authenticity of their reports in the case of Mark and Luke. So there's that, but the interesting thing with people who, and there's example, historical and contemporaneous examples of people 
who've done this, who've done a bit of what historians call revisionist scholarship, where they've gone and checked on whether the claims of earlier historians actually ring true. As that, as they're looking, as they're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as eyewitness testimony, all of a sudden they start believing not just the historical events, but believing that the events and the claims that Jesus makes aren't just empty claims of some itinerant preacher from the first century, but claims on each and every individual that's ever lived. And so what you get in reading this eyewitness testimony, and this is nothing that the historian can do or the apologist can do, but what the Holy Spirit does in, with, and under the word is you realize that it's not just eyewitness testimony, but the actual very word of God itself. It's like the um, paraphraser, J.B. Phillips, I once said that as he, even paraphrasing the Bible, he said was a very powerful act because he said it is kind of like trying to wire the uh, main electricity in a house with the electricity on. So while you're dealing with a text, a historical text, and eyewitness claims, and so on and so forth, you're also dealing with a very powerful Word of God. Dr. Adam Francisco is Director of Academics and Scholar-in-Residence for 1517. He's co-editor of Making the Case for Christianity and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Adam, thanks. You're welcome. We will be teaching a Sunday school lesson on King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel next. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December uses detailed illustrations and rhyming text to tell the story of Jesus' birth. It's titled, N is for Nativity. This new hardcover children's book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about N is for Nativity at issuesetc.org. Use the ABCs from Advent to Zion to teach your children and grandchildren the Christmas story with N is for Nativity. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. 
Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu.